0: For the first time with us, we're so thankful that you've decided to be with us today. We are a church that loves Jesus and we love His Word. And so today I'm excited to be back into the Word of God. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to say, y'all, wasn't last weekend just incredible? Wasn't it just incredible? Y'all, we saw five people go through the waters of baptism saying that they are now uh, with the Lord, uh, now following Jesus. And we saw at least eight people respond and say they want to start following Jesus. Isn't that, isn't that unbelievable? I mean like and we all not to mention we also had our highest attendance uh, in the history of our 3-year-old church with close to 250 people which is about 100 more people than we normally have on an average Sunday, which is just really fun. But one of the things I love about that uh, specifically is that it shows the faithfulness and intentionality of our people to, to live and, and just to live on mission and just to invite those around us. Because we as a collective group of people, for, uh, we spent 21 days praying and fasting for a bunch of different things. But one of the things that we were praying for was for people to come in, hear the gospel, and respond in salvation. And guess what? God answered that prayer. We have new brothers and sisters in Christ because of our collective efforts of praying and to get people into this room. Like if we didn't invite, if we didn't live on mission, y'all, that doesn't happen. So New City, when we pray, God moves. And so we pray and we pray and we pray and then we preach Jesus and then God opens up eyes to see uh, that's just the way God works. And when the Spirit of God moves, it moves in power. And last weekend, in God's kindness, again, we saw it fit to sweep across this room and just open up eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I want to see that happen over and over and over again until the whole world hears. Yes, we praise God and we thank God and we celebrate the faithfulness of God, but we also pray and we beg God for more. We beg God to keep moving and to keep saving and to keep seeing people grow into maturity in Christ. And so let's simply just be in awe of God's power and faithfulness and goodness, but may, may we also let it spur us on to see more of his power and more of his goodness. New City, our, our God is faithful. And so yes, our God moves mighty in mighty ways in a single day. But let's not, let's not forget he also moves in uh, week-to-week, everyday faithfulness of his people. God does both. And so today we pick back up in the book of Ephesians and we allow the word of God to sharpen us and strengthen us and encourage us just for our everyday life with Jesus. Yes, God saved 3,000 people in a day back at Pentecost like we see in Acts 2. But let's not forget the very next day all of those people woke up and they needed to be discipled. And they needed to be taught to follow Jesus. Not just in salvation, but in their everyday life. And so as we move from chapters 1 through 3 in Ephesians that we've been in over the past three months, looking at our gospel identity, today we're going to shift to the second half of Ephesians where we look at what it looks like to follow Jesus just in our everyday life. The second half of Ephesians we're titling, just as a new series, we're calling it Gospel Life because it shows us what it looks like to live life as a response to the gospel. So if Jesus has our life and has entered into our hearts and the old life is gone and the new life is here, then what we'll see is what the new life looks like. And no, the expectation is not perfection, uh, is not perfect obedience, but we're, perfect. we're not perfect people, but we do have a picture of what we're growing towards. If Jesus has our life and we've handed our life to him in salvation, then what we'll see is simply a result. It's the fruit of our salvation. It's the same idea that when you plant an apple seed in healthy soil and it gets watered day in and day out and sits in the sunlight, the seed begins to take root. It grows into an apple tree and it produces apples. A healthy apple tree produces healthy apples. That's similar to what happens in the Christian life. Jesus captures our heart, and when the seed of our faith gets put into healthy soil and finds sunlight and gets watered, our life begins to bear fruit that looks like Jesus. And so over the next couple of months, we'll look at what this healthy fruit looks like. We're going to inspect the fruit, looking at how the gospel affects the church and our relationships and parenting and work and how we speak and how we live. And this will be a little bit more topical in nature just because uh, the second half of Ephesians is a little bit more topical. And so we'll try to equip you and encourage you with simple ways just to invite your friends into some of these topics. But what we must understand every single week is that the gospel always comes first. All of this is a response to Jesus. Because what often happens is that people believe they're saved by grace through faith, saved by faith through grace, but then the good works are then up left up to them. It's like, yeah, I've got my salvation, I've got my eternal security, I've got Jesus for eternal life, but in this life, it's all up to me, which is just so far from what the Bible teaches. No, the gospel of Jesus, it saves us for eternal life, and it also sanctifies us in this life. to To say it another way, we need the gospel for after this life, and also we need it today for our everyday life. It's like we get that our eternal salvation is by grace. It's free. We didn't earn it, but then uh, we wrongly think the fruit of our life, it's up to us. Maybe we could say it would be like finding a, a, a fake uh, tree, kind of like finding a fake tree, going to Walmart, buying a, a fake tree, and then going and stapling a bunch of apples on it and saying, hey, look at my apple tree. Doesn't it look so nice? Like, I've got such a great apple tree here. I've worked so hard for this apple tree, and that fake tree, it looks perfect. It looks well put together. Those store-bought apples, they're shiny. They look good. They even taste good. There it is sitting out in your front yard uh, acting like a real tree. It's like, hey, friends, come look at my awesome apple tree that I've been working so hard. Like, I've got this awesome tree. And then your friends come and look at it, and they notice the little public sticker. With the little coat on it, on the fruit. And they're like, bro, you're weird. Okay? What in the world? This is not a real tree. And then after a couple of weeks of sitting in that hun- hot sun, those apples, they begin to rot. Because you just get tired of mustering up, like just mustering up the energy to staple those trees when you're like, no one, like it's just not working. It's exhausting. And we think of that and think, yeah, that's kind of weird, maybe a little funny and totally absurd. But yet that's often what we do in the Christian life. We think producing the healthy fruit in our life is all up to us. And so we worked really, really hard to be nice and friendly, to do all the Christian things, and to staple that fruit on our tree, but yet it doesn't last. I mean, after a while, we just get tired of stapling fruit on the fake tree. And why? Because the fruit isn't being produced through the, healthy, uh, the health of the tree that finds its nutrients through good soil and water and sunlight. It doesn't last because the fruit in our life, according to God's design, is not based on our hard work and effort. No, it's based on where the roots of our life are finding its nutrients. It's all about being in the right soil. The healthy fruit in our life is dependent on our source of life. It's dependent on Jesus. And so over the next couple of months, we're going to look at the fruit of the tree in chapters 4 through 6 and inspect the fruit. But in order to get the fruit of chapters 4 through 6, we have to sit in the soil of chapters 1 through 3. And so how do we produce healthy fruit in our life that looks like Jesus? Well, we simply come to God in his word. We look to Jesus and we let him nourish our heart and soul and then God produces the fruit in our life. Yo, our job is not to first make our life look like we're awesome Christians. No, Jesus just says, come to me and be nourished, and the byproduct is healthy fruit. And so that's where we're going in the second half of Ephesians. We're inspecting the fruit of our life while also sitting in the healthy soil of the gospel. And today, I find it fascinating, but yet not coincidental, that the first topic Paul addresses in a response to living in light of Jesus having our life is Unity. And it's not coincidental because this is the very last thing that Jesus taught his disciples at the Last Supper, right before his death in John 17. He pleaded with them and he urged them and he prayed that they would be unified as a people. New City, unity inside the church, the unity of God's people, it is of utmost importance. Which leads us to our main idea today. The gospel unifies God's people. Plain and simple. To not be unified as a people or to cause disunity in the church, it is absolute, blatant disobedience to Jesus. And it's not just disobedience like a mindless slap on the hand. No, it grieves the Lord. It pains him. It agonizes him. It's what Jesus went to the cross to die for. Because our God knows he did not create us to be this way, to live in disunity and disharmony with one another. No, God did not create us to be at odds with one another and to turn our backs on one another. And I don't think this should surprise us just from a non-spiritual perspective. I mean, when you read leadership books on, or, or articles or, or podcasts on team dynamics in sports or in organizations or in companies... Almost all will agree that being at odds with those on your team or those that you work with or in your organization, any sort of disunity or distrust, it will dampen the growth and success. And in some ways, some will say faster than anything else. I mean, disunity, it's a cancer. Because when there is a level of distrust and disunity and suspicion inside of any people or any organization, there is no way that it can thrive on all cylinders, we see this in sports. If you don't trust your teammates, you're going to catch the ball. You don't, you're going to be hesitant to throw them the ball. We see it at work. If you're hesitant to speak to a coworker because you're at odds with each other, you're going to struggle to work well, to each, well with one another. It will hinder your success. If you're at odds in a marriage and unable to work through disagreements, the, the marriage is going to severely struggle. Again, we see this all throughout our life. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the church will have to work and fight to be unified also. Let I me mean, just think about the last words after uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. Like, literally, Jesus said, go all over the world, to all different types of people, to all different cultures and backgrounds and upbringings and worldviews and religions, and make them all my disciples. Teach all of them to follow me. And I just imagine... The disciples, all fired up about it, excited, ready to take on the world for Jesus. They go out into their city, like we see in the book of Acts. They go out two by two. People come to faith in Christ from all over the city. And then I just imagine them bringing them together for the first time. And they come in to worship the Lord, excited about what God is doing. Like what what we see in Acts chapter 2. Right after, we see 3,000 people come to Christ in a day in Acts 2.41. But then, in Acts 2.42... The very next verse, we see them devoting themselves to teaching and to breaking bread together and praying. And and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So, y'all, I'm going to use some creative freedom here. And I want you just to imagine with me a few different possible scenarios between verse 41 and verse 42 in Acts 2. Let's just kind of read between the lines here. Again, we don't know what happened, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of those wonders and signs being witnessed at the end of Acts 2 were incredible displays of unity and reconciliation between people with extreme differences. I mean, just imagine with me, some of those people walking in after verse 41, all those people come to Christ in a day, seeing their, and then seeing their lifelong enemy in that same room right before verse 42. And in their heart and mind, everything in them wants to turn around and leave, I mean, you could just imagine the messiness of bringing 3,000 people together who just gave their life to Jesus at the day of Pentecost and say, okay, uh, y'all all be family now. Like, everyone to get along and be happy. I mean, just be one big happy family. Like, that would seem to be totally crazy, except for the fact that that's actually what happened. Again, we have no clue what actually happened, but just imagine the scene. I mean, one guy's like, hey, that dude stole my donkey last week, he needs to go to jail. And one girl says, hey, that, that's the girl that my husband had an affair with two months ago. Or maybe one guy is like, hey, that guy murdered my brother. <laughs> and then one girl says, hey, that's, that's the girl that has been so mean to me, just so rude. And then a teenager sees his lifelong bully and says, that guy has been stealing my lunch money for the past 10 years. I've had enough. He's going he's to get it. I mean, just imagine the messiness of all of this with the disciples standing there scratching their heads thinking, "Uh uh-oh, what in the world are we going to do? This is a big old mess. And then they remember what Jesus prayed right before his death in John 17, saying, God, make them one just as you and I are one. You know, I just imagine the disciples remembering and thinking, oh, wait, we need Jesus to help us with this. We need the spirit and power of God to work in a mighty way here to bring unity to these people. We can't do this on our own. God, we need your help. Then what happened? The Spirit of God moved in their heart and softened their hearts. And I wouldn't be surprised if the same things that we see in our text today in Ephesians also happened in their life to unify them with the help of the Spirit. And maybe they realized, yeah, we've got some differences, but Jesus, He's greater than all of that. And in Acts 2.42, they broke bread together. They prayed together. They started selling all of their possessions and giving them to everyone. Whoever had a need, it was all met. It says at the end of Acts 2, they had glad and generous hearts. It was an incredible display of divine unity. And so maybe you're here, you're here, maybe that's where you are today. And you're very aware of disunity or a lack of trust. Maybe in a friendship or in your marriage or maybe in a family. Maybe here in the church. And you get that thought, Lord, I need your help. Jesus, do a work in my heart. Maybe thinking, God, I know you see this person as your child, but I'm really struggling to like them right now. God, would you help me? Wherever you are today, whether you're very aware of a current state of disunity or coming out of some sort of disunity or going into possibly seeking to guard against it in the future, no matter where where you are on the spectrum of disunity, if the enemy is real, which we believe that he is, disunity, it is always lurking on the horizon, which is is why Paul urges for unity in the church. So as we enter into chapter 4 of Ephesians, after three chapters of all that we are in Christ, the very first thing that Paul touches on is unity. So that said, let's go ahead and look at our first six verses in chapter 4. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your, to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So right out, of the, right out of the gate, Paul says, I therefore, again, showing us that all about what he's about to say is a response to chapters one through three. And he said in verse one, he said, I therefore, look at it, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Meaning, because of who you are in Christ, because of what God has done in you through receiving Christ as Lord and giving us a new identity, because the seed of Jesus is in you, this then is how we are to live. This is the fruit that will come out of you, and that urges uh, Paul urges in verse one to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And what is that calling that we've been called? New City, we're called saints. We're called forgiven. We're called redeemed. We're called chosen and adopted. We're called God's beloved children. And so, in essence, he's saying, You're free. You're a saint. You've been washed by the blood of Jesus. And so, live out of that reality. And what we'll see over and over again in these last three chapters, what I want to try to beat it into our brains week after week is the truth that we live from freedom. We don't live for freedom. No, we live from our identity, not for our identity. We live in a certain way because God loves us, not so that God will love us. And church, there is a massive difference We live as a unified people, not so that God will be happy with us or because that's just the right thing to do, but rather because God has forgiven us, and he is pleased with us, and we are his beloved children. All of us are, if we're in Christ. God has forgiven all those who call Jesus Lord. He has forgiven us greatly, and so we are to then, as a response, to forgive others greatly. Again, not because we have to, but because the Spirit compels us to. By the love of God. Again, we live from our identity, not for our identity. Which leads us to our first of three points for today. Number one, unity is a response to our gospel identity. This idea that we're talking about, in my personal opinion, this is one of the greatest misunderstandings in the American church in our day. know, one of the greatest, like, this is one of the greatest misunderstandings. It's the belief that we have to get right with God and live in the right way so that God will be happy with us. And to which I will say, yes, that is partly true. God does, in fact, desire our holiness. He does desire that we would live in a way that honors him. If that wasn't the case, Paul would not be urging us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. But what so many have misunderstood with that is forgetting that, and, and please listen to me. Okay, there is nothing we can do to make God more happy with us because of the way we live. Yes, again, yes, he is pleased and honored when we do honor him with our life. It's simple evidence that he has our life. If our life doesn't have any fruit that looks like Jesus, there's a good chance that the seed of Jesus never took root. Or, or just maybe, like the parable of the sower, it sprouted, maybe there was a response to salvation, but it was choked out by the world. Or the enemy scorched it in its infancy, or it just never fully took root. But for those who do have the seed of Jesus in our life, we will begin to bear fruit that looks like Jesus. This is just what happens. But this is what we must understand. God is not more pleased with us or less pleased with us because of the fruit or the lack of a specific fruit. No, God is 100% totally pleased with us because of Jesus and the cross. God is pleased with us simply because we have the seed of Jesus in our life. And God, by the Spirit, out of his love for us, is taking that seed, and it is ma- he is making us more like Jesus. Again, we don't earn God's love for us. No, his love, it is 100% a free gift that was given to us by believing in the cross and the resurrection. And then, in light of that love and free gift, as a response, we then live differently. We live unified with every brother and sister that calls Jesus Lord. Again, our gospel identity affects the way we live. And as our first point says, unity is a response to our gospel identity. And I think, again, I think we get this just from simple, simple everyday life. Runners run, singers sing, artists make art, and followers, followers of Jesus work to be unified with other followers of Jesus. This is just the fruit of Jesus being in our life. But let's keep moving. And look at what he says next. Paul says in verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I love what Paul does here. He doesn't just say be unified, but he gives us a description and a tool to help us work towards unity. He doesn't just say be unified and live rightly and live in a manner worthy of our calling, but he also, he then, he describes it for us. He paints a picture for us of what it looks like. And what does that look like? What does it look like to live unified? Well, it looks like Jesus. (laughs) If Jesus is in us, he will shine through us. And I want to dig into this some because I think this will be helpful for us. Look, I want to point out verse 3 first before we get to verse 2. Look what it says. Paul says in verse 3, he says, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And so Paul gives a few things of what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of our calling in verse 2, like patience and gentleness and humility. Uh, But he ends it all with saying, eager to maintain unity. Meaning, if Christ is in us, the healthy fruit that comes out of Jesus being in us is an eagerness to maintain unity, to be committed to working through conflict. And listen, listen. Okay? Running from conflict and avoiding conflict and just sweeping things under the rug for the sake of keeping the peace, that is not unity. That's not what Paul's getting at. Being eager to maintain unity is not a passive thing, no, it's an active thing. It takes work. Again, avoiding conflict and sweeping it under the rug is still disunity, it's just unspoken disunity. It's a, it's a mirage of unity. It's not real unity because there is an unspoken wall of hostility that needs to be brought down and dismantled. And Paul says we should be eager to bring down that separating, unspoken wall of disunity and hostility. And why? Because the Spirit of God is in us. The seed of Jesus is in us. That's just what Jesus does. Listen, church. The Spirit of God inside of us is a reconciling, unifying Spirit that comes with a bond of peace. That's what Paul gets at. The Spirit of God brings peace. It bonds people together. So get this, okay? If two followers of Jesus, they have, if both are followers of Jesus, they have the same Spirit inside of them. And it immediately bonds them together. And so if Jesus is inside of two people who are at odds with each other, they're already spiritually unified. They're bonded together in peace through the blood of Jesus. It's already true in Christ and true through the Spirit, but yet outwardly in the flesh, unity simply just needs to work its way out into our everyday life. And so if the Spirit of God is in people who are not outwardly unified relationally, kind of out in the world, this happens to all of us just in our everyday life, then we need to ask, how then does the Spirit outwardly unify His people who are already spiritually unified? So we're, we're inwardly unified through the Spirit, but outwardly we often can become disunified. So what does the Spirit do inside of us to help us work towards unity? Unity. Like, what happened in our made-up story between Acts 41 and 42 to unify all of those people? Well, God does the work inside of each of us to model the life of Jesus. Which then leads us to number two. Unity is maintained through Christ-like conduct. I mean, just imagine, okay, our imaginary guy who comes to Jesus at Pentecost. He gives his life to the Lord in Acts chapter 41, part of that 3,000 that were saved in today. And he sees the guy that murdered his brother in that house in Acts 2.42, right before Acts 2.42. Or just imagine the woman who sees, uh, who sees his husband's mistress before he gave his life to Jesus. Like what in the world would have happened for them to then break bread together and give generously to one another? That seems like a big change, right? I wouldn't be surprised if the Spirit of God did a work to show what we see in verse two. And, and y'all, sometimes these heart changes happen instantaneously, probably like what happened at Pentecost, and sometimes it takes years of day after day after day of the Spirit just slowly going to work on our hearts. But regardless of the timeline, the Spirit of God empowers us to live in a way that looks like Jesus, which then helps us to live outwardly unified. I love how Paul gives specifics to what this looks like. Look back at verse 2. He says, "...with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love." God, I don't like to speak in total absolutes unless it comes from God's word, but I'm going to say that if what we see in this verse is present with all parties, I believe it's a really fair thing to say that unity will be maintained. Where on the flip side, if the opposite of what we see here is not present, disunity will be lurking at the door, if not just wreaking havoc. Just look at the first verse. Paul says, with all humility, Leading us to our first of four subpoints, And number two, humil- these will be quick. Number two, a humility maintains unity. Pride causes disunity. Y'all, you know, I'm not a hunting dog. But if I were a hunting dog, hungry to find disunity and hunting for disunity within the church, if I started sniffing out pride, I think I'd quickly find some sort of disunity right there with it pride in the hearts of God's people, it has the ability to totally destroy the church and marriages and friendships and families. And when we think we're the best or that we're always right and never wrong. There is a severe, that is a severe stronghold directly from the enemy that has no place in the church. We're on the flip side. If I were a hunting dog, hunting for people, searching for people who were eager and hungry to maintain unity, I'd start sniffing around for humility Because when a group of people are committed to laying down our life and humbling ourselves as Jesus laid down his life for us, going to the cross to die, we can then swallow our pride and our desire to be right or to be the best and just walk in the humility of the Spirit and say, God, you are king, I am not. And no, humility doesn't look like just degrading ourselves, it doesn't look like weakness. No, in the strength and the power of God, humility looks like elevating and reflecting everything to Jesus. Realizing that it all came from, from God and living out of that strength and power. And then in return, thinking of others before ourselves. You know, I pray a lot of things for our church, for our pastors, for those in leadership. But one of the things that is at the top of my list is that we would be, a, we would be marked by a, as a humble people. That we would not be seen as a people that think we have it all together and that think we're the best No, but rather remembering that we're a broken church for broken people, that we are hungry, and we're just hungry and desperate for the strength and power of Jesus. Again, pride kills unity where humility helps to maintain it. But let's look what else Paul says in verse 2. He said, with all gentleness. So how else does he eagerly maintain unity? Well, we model gentleness. To be gentleness maintains unity. Hostility causes disunity. When Paul says gentleness, he's not talking about being timid and fearful and getting walked all over. No, he's speaking in line with being self-controlled and not being aggressive or forceful. I mean, just think about it. When two people begin yelling at each other or maybe being rude or snarky towards one another, that is not what it looks like to eagerly maintain unity. No, it further drives a wedge of disunity. You know, something we say often in our house as a way to help foster this in trying to just grow in gentleness, we'll say often that the way in which we say things matters just as much as what we say. When we're at odds with someone, we need to ask, are we being gentle in our demeanor? Or are we being combative and defensive just to prove a point? Again, even if we may be right and true in what we say, the way in which we say it, if it is not not done in humility and gentleness, our demeanor and outward hostility, it is a tool in the hands of the enemy that is seeking to stir up disunity among his people. I mean, just imagine that brother that sees the guy that killed his brother a few months back, and both of them just gave their life to Jesus. The only way those two can be reconciled is by both of them walking in humility and gentleness and realizing that the old life is gone and the new life is here. New City, when unity and reconciliation happens, it shows the world the power and the beauty of Jesus. And so what maintains unity? Well, so far we've seen humility and gentleness. But what else does Paul say in verse 2 to help maintain unity? He says, patience. Leading us to say to see people, patience maintains unity, impatience causes disunity. And y'all, this, is, this one is so hard for me and so convicting, but yet I know that it's true because I see it in my own life. I mean, when two people are impatient with one another, maybe short with each other, maybe not being willing to slow down and seek to understand, disunity is knocking at the door. I mean, just being impatient with our kids or spouse or those we work with, y'all, it is a fast way to drive a wedge between a relationship, and maybe you're like me and you've prayed for patience and said, God, give me patience and give it quickly. Like quickly, like I needed it yesterday. And this week, y'all, are was so convicted by this because you know what one commentator had the audacity to say? He said a lack of patience, so it's a lack of humility and love. Hmm, talk about a gut check. But it is so True. Because when we stop and think about it, when we're being impatient, we think our timeline and schedule is more important than the other person's timeline. And I get it. When, like, even when other person is showing disrespect or being late or not keeping their word, I get it. That's not right. But that's their problem, not ours. Our call as followers of Jesus is to be patient. And also, as we see in verse 2, he says, bearing with one another in love. Essentially saying that, uh, like, that love puts up with a lot of stuff. Listen, I know this is hard. I get it. But patient, forbearing love, it tolerates a lot of annoyances and challenges. New City, love is patient. Love is kind. And if the seed of Jesus is in our life, patient, forbearing, tolerating is love is the fruit. Showing us 2D. Forbearing love maintains unity where hate causes disunity. Again, what's the total opposite of love? It's hate which is a really strong word, but it manifests itself in a lot of different ways that drive it, drives a wedge of disunity. And I don't think this should be surprising for us because if there is a disagreement, if we're asking the question, how can I love this person, even in our disagreement, I don't think we'd be surprised if how we can still have outward disagreements and still be unified. Because forbearing patient love, even in our disagreements and when we've been wronged, it models the life of Jesus. It's how we work to maintain unity. I mean, just think back to our imaginary ladies at, lady at Pentecost. Uh, like, that maybe sees the lady that just drives her up a wall that is just so rude. I mean, she just smacks her gum way too loud. I mean, she has way too many opinions. Uh, and to make matters worse, you're just frustrated because she always keeps choosing uh, the Pentecostal Burger King over Wendy's. And she keeps boasting about it, like how they just really stepped up their their game in the past 10 years. I mean, just the audacity of it. But regardless of the annoyance or the issue, whatever the problem is, it's just driving her crazy until the Holy Spirit grabbed her heart and reminded her that what 1 Peter 4 says, that love covers a multitude of sins. New City, part of the Spirit working in our life is moving us to patient, forbearing love when it's not so easy to love. Again, if we're eagerly and actively seeking to maintain unity and not passive, it will look like walking in love and humility and patience. We're on the flip side. If those are not present, disunity is knocking at the door. And I want to say, I don't know who or why or what you're going through. And maybe at the present moment, there isn't a spirit of disunity in your life. But I know one thing is certain. It's always just around the corner. But regardless of when or how, I do know this. If the spirit of God is in you and also in the other person, whatever the disagreement is, if the spirit of God is in both of you, you're already unified by the same spirit. An outward reconciliation and unity, it's possible. Jesus died for you both. Jesus died so you could be reconciled. Jesus did not die for his people to be at odds. No, he died for us to be unified with him and also with each other. Very clear evidence of a healthy local church is a unified body. And I'll say this. As a pastor... My job and our other pastor's job, our job is to watch over people, to feed our people, the word of God, to lead our people, and to protect our people. Which means part of our job is to step into disunity in the church. We don't run from it. No, we engage it and we seek to bring it back to health. You know, in Acts chapter 20, Paul told the Ephesians elders, this book that we're studying, to be on the lookout for wolves that are seeking to devour the church. And one of the things a wolf in sheep's clothing will do is to seek to cause disunity in the church. And so my job, and our job as elders at New City, is to be on the lookout for wolves, to protect the flock from disunity. There are a lot of things that our enemy would love to do in order to keep the mission of God from going forward. And if the enemy can't keep us quiet and apathetic about Jesus, we better believe he'll find a a way to take a zealous group of people and pit them against one another to hinder their effectiveness to the kingdom of God. Again, pride and hate and rudeness and impatience, it is not from the Lord. No humility and gentleness and patience and forbearing love, that's from the Lord. New City, may we seek the Lord, follow his example, and live by the power of the Spirit that was sealed for us at the cross. So that said, let's look at our last few verses for the day, just the last eight or ten minutes of our time. Look at verses four through six. Paul says, There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It was over all and through all and in and all. So how are we unified as one body? Well, we're unified because of our faith, leading us to number three. Unity in the church is found in our declaration of faith. Well, there are a lot of things we can disagree on. Style of preaching, style of music, what programs we have, what we don't have, what we do in our services, how we should use our resources, as an and on and on we could go. But at the end of the day, what unifies the body of Christ in the local church, it is Jesus. It's our declaration of faith and hope in Jesus. We have the same spirit inside of us. We have the same hope in Jesus. We have the same God. We're all considered his children, and he's totally over us as a church, and that's what unifies us. We're not unified by preferences or styles or common interests. We're not unified by popular opinions, sports opinions, or political opinions. No, we're unified by Jesus and his word. Now, yes, we have a statement of faith, and we teach the Bible, and we can disagree on a lot of things in our faith, but we can't disagree on Jesus. We can't disagree on the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and we can't disagree on the authority of the Bible. I mean, if we disagree on Jesus and the Word, we cannot be unified. I'm not talking about the interpretations of the Word or specific passages that don't really hinder much of the foundation of our faith. No, I'm talking about the authority of the Word and the reliability of the Word. If the Bible has no authority in our life and we don't see it as totally real and reliable, then we have no common ground of faith. Because if the Bible isn't reliable and real and true, and we see it as a fable or maybe true or maybe not, unity won't be found. Here at New City, we submit to the Word. The Word of God is what we stand on. and and So that's where our unity is found. As Paul said, we have one faith, one Lord, one spirit, and, and, and one God who is over all and in all of it. But how that plays out in our everyday life with things that don't have a book or, or a verse explicitly stating and tell us, telling us exactly what to do, we have to use wisdom and discernment. And some things are more clear than others. But we can be unified even in our disagreements. And when and how? Well, when humility and gentleness... And love and patience is present. We can use our brains and we can think well. We can be wise and we can also be humble and gentle and loving all at the same time. And when will disunity be present? When we're belligerent or rude or prideful or cold-hearted. Unity will struggle to be found. Because you know what's so scary about that? Do you know who knows more of the Bible than probably all of us? satan our enemy could outwit and outsmart and quote probably more than the bible than we could but you know what he lacks patience and love and gentleness and humility new city when jesus is in our life the resulting fruit should be an eagerness to maintain unity with one another And we could keep going on and on about the implications of disunity and the need to fight for unity. And it's simply just like, it's just simply part of following Jesus. We have a faith that draws people together and reconciles and restores relationships and marriages and friendships and whole families. And the reason we know this is because that's what Jesus did for us at the cross. Jesus was born and lived and died on the cross so that we could be reconciled with God. So we could be with God forever. And the resulting fruit of that is a heart posture of forgiveness and reconciliation with others around us in our life. Jesus says, don't just forgive once, but keep forgiving over and over again. Seventy times seven. We just keep forgiving. We keep seeking to restore relationships. And I don't know about you, but New City, this is so hard. This is like emotionally and mentally exhausting day after day and week after week keep forgiving the same people for the same sin over and over again showing patient forbearing love and gentleness and humility when the same person keeps messing up again and again maybe it's your spouse or your kids maybe it's a, a friend or someone in our church that, that that you've like just lost it with you're sick and tired of being sick and tired of the same just garbage Again, I don't know what it is, and by no means am I saying we put up and tolerate unsafe, abusive relationships. No, the Bible speaks to that. We use wisdom in that. But what the Bible does tell us to do is to be eager to maintain unity and to forgive. And I don't know about you, but that is a hard fruit just to muster up and produce on our own. That's a fruit that we can get real tired of real quickly just continuing to staple onto our tree it's going to rot real fast. So what do we do? How do we do it? Well, very simply, we just sit in the presence of Jesus. We, we just come to God in his word and we sit with Jesus and we let him just slowly change our heart. Y'all, we can't rush fruit in our life. We simply let the roots of our heart and soul, we just let it marinate in the soil of the deep love of God and we just stay there. And we just like watered by the grace of God. This says to us, every day, you're my child. (laughs) You today are forgiven again. You, my holy and beloved saint, uh, I, I have power and holiness to give to you again today. And we just come and we sit in the deep, rich soil of Jesus' love and grace and mercy and focus on his love and how much he's forgiven us and not try to produce anything of ourself and simply just read his word and meditate on the word and pray the word and worship in the soil of God's grace and be watered by his word and the spirit. You know what happens? God does a work in us. Our worship of Jesus, it overflows outside of us. And that overflow of worship, you know what it does? It softens our hearts. It humbles us. It moves us to be gentle and patient and humble and to show forbearing love. And then says to those around us that we're at odds with, that we're mad at, and we can just say, you know what, Jesus died for you and for me. Jesus loves you as my child. I'm going to love you knowing that you're a child of God. I know you're not perfect, but Jesus in you, the Spirit in you, he's perfect. And because of that, we can be reconciled and we can walk in unity. New City, we can't produce that fruit on our own. That comes from the power of Jesus that was displayed at the cross. And if you're here today and you know you need forgiveness, Jesus, his grace, it is sufficient for you. The cross where he bled and died, it offers you forgiveness today. And if you're not a Christian here today, you too can have this by just giving your life to him. You can have it for the first time today. But if you are a Christian here today, today yet again, because Jesus is alive and the resurrection is true, today yet again, forgiveness is yours. The grace and mercy of Jesus, it comes in plenty and overflowing towards you. Again, I don't know what's going on in your life, but my hope and prayer is that today we'd all walk out of here just reconciled to God and work to be reconciled to each other, eager, eager, eager to maintain unity. Maybe today you simply need to make a phone call. Or simply just find a brother or a sister or just simply ask for forgiveness or maybe even offer forgiveness. I don't know what it is, but I know this. The gospel reconciles. It reconciles all things, including God's people. This is what Jesus in us does and accomplishes. And y'all, it is so good. And it shows the world that Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. You've placed inside of all those who call Jesus Lord. You've placed inside of each one of us the same Spirit that bonds us together. We're already unified because of the Spirit of God. So God, I pray that out of that unified identity that we have with each brother and sister in Christ, that we would just outwardly display that to the world. God, your love is great. Would you do a deep and abiding work in us? God, we need your help today. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.